On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we review the revised conditions for coverage related to the vaccine mandate and the accompanying instructions to surveyors as to how to assess compliance. And in our focus segment, we visit with the AHS staff during their fall 2021 retreat and discuss the current challenges in the industry and how ASCs can prepare. Welcome to the AC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 147 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for December 30th, 2021, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. John is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. And here we are, only two days after we recorded the last episode, and, mm-hmm. and actually a day after we uh, we did a nice uh, quarterly update a couple yep. uh, last night. Um, so we're recording on Thursday and Wednesday night. All of our patron members, the people that are members of our patron program, which is also known as ASC Central, were able to uh, get together and uh, we did a slide presentation on a number of different issues. I think mm-hmm. we were talking about the vaccine mandate, which is always a great yeah. topic. Um, we were talking a little bit about the uh, No Surprise Billing Act. And we also talked about the upcoming changes to the ASC Quality Reporting Program for Medicare. Mm-hmm. So had a great interaction. I think we had uh, probably about 15 people at one point. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a nice interaction. We have about a – we have over 100 members right now, Sue, in our patron yeah. program. So we're very grateful for – for all of the uh, support that they have for us and, and the interactions that we get during our, our weekly updates and mm-hmm. our, our quarterly presentations. So Yeah, and of course, most of the time we have Lori Rodericks and Ann Geyer has been joining yeah. us. So we've got three surveyors and, and lots of knowledge there. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great update. We enjoy those, uh, mm-hmm. the, all of those events. It's yeah. great to get together and listen to our listeners and get ideas mm-hmm. from them as to, uh, you know, upcoming topics. And we're going to talk about that in our third segment. We've got a lot going on uh, in the future here. I hope everybody is having a great holiday. Uh, it's coming to the end of 2021, mm-hmm. uh, another year that I think we're all kind of grateful to see disappear. <laughs> uh, maybe not as much as 2020 was, uh, but I would hope that 2022 will be better. Uh, we'll probably get one more episode in before the end of the year here. We have to talk about surprise billing, and uh, we have a, uh interview that we did on that topic. So uh, mm-hmm. hopefully you'll, you'll, you and I will be able to do that on New yeah, Year's Eve tomorrow. Good, I was going to say, we've got a whole, what, day or two? I know. We, we're going <laughs> to have to work on that. the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we are trying to get caught up on our mm-hmm. material. We are we're yeah. about six episodes behind right now in material. So 
So we pretty much wanted to dedicate the uh, the entire news section here on a very important quality and safety oversight memo that came out this week, uh, which we think needs to be addressed. And of course, it's about the uh, vaccine mandate. So on December 28th, CMS issued a quality safety and oversight memo um, to the states and the accrediting organizations entitled Guidance for the Interim Final Rule, Medicare and Medicaid Programs, Omnibus COVID-19 Healthcare Staff Vaccination, or QSO 2207-ALL, which adds a Section C to the conditions for coverage in Section 416.51, Infection Control. So we've added a link to this in the show notes for the episode. And it's not that common to have a new condition for coverage. Yeah, it was a pretty uh, serious thing. Yeah, the the way they addressed it was unusual, uh, which, uh, of course, gives us uh, uh, serious issues with regard Mm -hmm. to uh, surveys. So it shows how serious they're taking the vaccine mandate. And we're well aware that there are, um, you know, legal challenges to this also. We'll talk about that in a second. But with the publication of this QSO-22-07, CMS has adjusted the compliance date uh, dates for this regulation, in other words, the vaccine mandate. So there are no, now two uh, new compliance dates. The phase one compliance date for the mandate is now January 27th, 2022, which is 30 days after the release of the memo this week. And it requires the staff to have the first vaccine in a two-dose regime. Uh, this is also the compliance date for requesting a federally recognized exemption. And phase two compliance date for the mandate is February 28th, 2022, or 60 days after the release of the memo. And phase two involves covered staff receiving the second dose of a multi-dose vaccine or the single dose of a single dose vaccine or having received a federally recognized exemption. So I think the, a couple differences between phase one and phase two, you ha- if you, you're going to get a two vaccine regime, you should uh, have the first one by January 27th, and then the second by February 28th. If you're only going to have the one vaccine, uh, you have to have it by uh, February 28th. Mm-hmm. Now, we should also mention that if you are going to get a federally recognized exemption, uh, you have to put the application in by January 27th, and your employer has to act on it by February 28th. Mm-hmm. So in our episode last week, which we dated and timed, I believe. Good thing. Uh, right. We indicated, right. We indicated 10 states where the, the regulation is not going to be in place. And so with the issuance of the QSO, uh, the total number of states that are currently, uh, where currently they're not going to enforce, enforce the uh, vaccine mandate is up to 25. Sue, so why don't you list mm-hmm. the t- uh, 25? Okay. So I'm going to list these and also keep in mind, though, that this could change at any time, I think January Correct. 7th, which we'll, we'll talk about further on. So there's Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming. I, I kind of imagine everybody was kind of listening to that, just like we did as a kid when we were waiting for, for our snow schools. to be. <laughs> or maybe that's going to say my yeah. <laughs> my but again, don't, be on the list. don't well, get too comfortable because we're yeah. changing all the time. So surveyors in uh, these states have been instructed to not undertake any efforts to implement or enforce the regulation. Mm-hmm. 
And on December 22nd, the Supreme Court of the United States indicated that it will hold a special session on January 7th, 2022, to hear oral argument in cases brought by a number of states requesting that the OSHA and CMS vaccine mandates be stayed. Note that this is a highly unusual move on behalf of the Supreme Court and an indication of how seriously they're looking into the mandates. So on or after the oral arguments on uh, January 7th, the court will address only whether the mandate should be preliminarily enjoined pending litigation and and the decision in the lower courts. It should be noted that the standard that the court will apply for granting preliminary relief will involve determining whether the states asking for the stay can demonstrate that they are likely to win the case based on the merits of the case. And the January 7th argument, Um, is likely to result in a number of opinions from the court. So whatever happens, it should be noted that the court's decision will not be a final decision about these mandates. And just a reminder, because of the deadlines, it's really important to note that even if you are in a state where the mandate cannot be enforced, you need to be prepared to act quickly if the court reverses direction on this. Yeah, and another point to make is that uh, you have to weigh both the federal mandates and the state mandates to determine which have stricter requirements. I'll give you an example. For example, in New York, the mandate in New York doesn't allow for a religious exemption. However, the federal mandate does. Uh, therefore, the federal requirements will stand with the exception that you cannot use a religious exemption in New York since that is stricter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're going to go right on to the actual condition for coverage and the interpretations. And please bear with us. This is indeed one of the longest standards in the conditions for coverage ever written, which is very unusual. And I think it took me about four hours to go through this to to parse out what we have. And I apologize if I've summarized it too much, but we are giving you a link to the entire Mm -hmm. document so that you can read through it. And I, and unfortunately I do recommend that you do read the whole thing. Yeah. So the new standard reads as follows. Um, Standard COVID-19 vaccination of staff. The ASC must develop and implement policies and procedures to ensure that all staff are fully vaccinated for COVID-19. For purposes of this section, staff are considered fully vaccinated if it has been two weeks or more since they completed a primary vaccination series for COVID-19. The completion of a primary vaccination series for COVID-19 is defined here as the administration of a single-dose vaccine or the administration of all the required doses of a multi-dose vaccine. And moving on to uh, item number one under the standard, regardless of clinical responsibility or patient contact, the policies and procedures must apply to the following center staff who provide any care, treatment, or other services for the center and or its patients. Number one, center employees. Number two, licensed practitioners. Number three, students, trainees, and volunteers. And four, individuals who provide care, treatment, or other services for the center and or its patients under contract or by other arrangement. And I think that's important, regardless of clinical responsibility or patient contact. So, you know, that's an important note. Um, And number two, the policies and procedures of the section do not apply to the following center staff. Number one, staff who exclusively provide telehealth or telemedicine services outside of the center setting and who do not have any direct contact with patients and other staff, specified in paragraph C1 of the section. And two, staff who provide support services for the center that are performed exclusively outside the center setting and who do not have any direct contact with patients and other staff specified in an upcoming paragraph of this section. 
And the policies and procedures must include, at a minimum, the following components. So this addresses the uh, what changes you're going to need to make mm-hmm. to your policies and procedures. And listen to it closely because uh, the surveyors are required as part of their yeah. uh, instructions to read through the policies. Because it's important that everybody's vaccinated, but... If everybody's vaccinated, but you don't have any policies in place, that's exactly that's right. That's exactly going right. to be a problem. So the policies must include at a minimum the following components: number one, a process for ensuring all staff identified in this in paragraph C one of this section, except for those staff who have pending requests for or who have been granted exemptions to the vaccination requirements of this section, are those staff for whom COVID nineteen vaccination must be temporarily delayed as recommended by the CDC due to clinical precautions and considerations have received at a minimum a single dose COVID-19 vaccine or the first dose of the primary vaccination series for a multi-dose COVID-19 vaccine prior to staff providing any care, treatment, or other services for the center and or its patients. And number two, a process for ensuring that all staff specified in paragraph C1 of this section are fully vaccinated except for those staff who have been granted exceptions to the vaccination requirements of the section or those staff for whom COVID-19 vaccination must be temporarily delayed as recommended by the CDC due to clinical precautions and considerations. Number three, a process for ensuring the implementation of additional precautions intended to mitigate the transmission and spread of COVID-19 for all staff who are not fully vaccinated for COVID-19. Number four, a process for tracking and securely documenting the COVID-19 vaccination status of all staff specified in paragraph C1 of this section. Number five, a process for tracking and securely documenting the COVID-19 vaccination status of any staff who have obtained any booster doses as recommended by the CDC. And six, a process by which staff may request an exemption from the staff COVID-19 vaccination requirements based on an applicable federal law. Number seven, a process for tracking and securely documenting information provided by those staff who have requested and for whom the center has granted an exemption from the staff COVID-19 vaccination requirements. And number eight, and again, I mean, this has gotten so long, but remember, these are all of the policies and processes you must have in place. Um, for the surveyors for to when review the surveyors, when they come in, yep. right. So number eight, a process for ensuring that all documentation which confirms recognized clinical contraindications to COVID-19 vaccines and which supports staff requests for medical exemptions from vaccination has been signed and dated by a licensed practitioner who is not the individual requesting the exemption and who is acting within their respective scope of practice as defined by and in accordance with all applicable state and and local laws and for further ensuring that such documentation contains a all information specifying which of the authorized or licensed COVID-19 vaccines are clinically contraindicated for the staff member to receive and recognize clinical reasons for the contraindications and be a statement by the authenticating provider recommending that the staff member be exempted from the center's COVID-19 vaccination requirements based on the recognized clinical contraindications. Continuing, item number nine, a process for ensuring the tracking and secure documentation of the vaccination status of staff for whom COVID-19 vaccination must be temporarily delayed as recommended by the CDC due to clinical precautions and considerations, including, but not limited, to individuals with acute illness secondary to COVID-19 and individuals who receive monoclonal antibodies or convalescent plasma for COVID-19 treatment and... 
And 10, contingency plans for staff who are not fully vaccinated for COVID-19. And I think that uh, last one is very important here because as we're reading through this, Sue, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out whether we need to have those contingency plans, even if everybody is fully vaccinated. And my reading is that, yes, you do. I think, yeah. Just in case in the future you Mm -hmm. have a situation where people... Uh, I, I think where that might be a problem is if they become no longer fully vaccinated because mm-hmm. there's a requirement mm-hmm. put in place to have a, a booster vaccine and they don't get the booster. Yep. So with this memo, guidance was also published for surveyors. Surveyors will begin surveilling for the compliance uh, 30 days after the issuance of the Quality and Safety Oversight Memorandum through a full survey for recertification or reaccreditation federal initial surveys, or a complaint survey. Surveyors will be guided to focus on the vaccination status and the ASC policies to address vaccination for staff that regularly work in the ASC based on the phased-in approach described earlier. So that's interesting because I hadn't noticed that before, but even if it's a complaint survey, totally maybe unrelated. Anytime somebody's Correct. surveying you, this uh, they're looking Basically, if they're coming out, if CMS is coming out or the state is coming out yeah. or the accreditation organization is coming out, this is one of the first things that they're going to look at. Yeah, and you were commenting that this is really going to be time-consuming. So the more organized you can be and, and the more able to give the surveyors this information, yeah. the better off you're going to be because they're not going to be happy. So CMS expects all facility staff to have received the appropriate number of doses by the time frame specified in the memorandum unless exempted as required by law. Facility staff vaccination rates under 100% constitute noncompliance under the rule. The SC policies and procedures must be implemented within 30 days of the publication of this regulation and address each of the following components. The ASCs must have a process for ensuring all staff, as defined above, have received at least a single dose or the first dose of a multi-dose COVID-19 vaccine series prior to providing any care, treatment, or other services for the facility and or its patients. And I think probably one of the most significant uh, parts of the memo is what follows. The policy must also ensure that staff who are not yet fully vaccinated or who have been granted an exemption or accommodation as authorized by the law or who have a temporary delay adhere to additional precautions that are intended to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. There are a variety of actions or job modifications a facility may implement to potentially reduce the risk of COVID-19 transmission, including but not limited to the following. Now, it's important to note that what they're saying here is that you can't just say, oh, they wear a mask, and that's Mm -hmm. all we Mm -hmm. need to do. So anybody that is granted an exemption, you're going to have to justify how you're protecting the patients and the other staff members by having at least some of these uh, mitigation factors. And it's going to be up to the surveyor to determine ultimately whether they are sufficient. That's going to be an interesting thing because, I I mean, as a surveyor, I don't have any guidance yet as to exactly mm-hmm. what, uh, the, you know, how, how many of these things you need to have. And yeah. I think it's going to be a case-by-case basis, too. So some of these actions include reassigning staff who have not completed their primary vaccination series to non-patient care areas, to duties that can be performed remotely, like telehealth, telework, or to duties which limit exposure to those most at risk, such as assigning to patients who are not immunocompromised 
um, are unvaccinated. Another idea is requiring staff who have not completed their primary vaccination series to follow additional CDC recommended precautions, such as adhering to universal source control and physical distancing measures in areas that are restricted from patient access. For example, uh, staff meeting rooms in the kitchen. An example would be basically in those areas, they would not be allowed uh, to be in those areas without a mask. If they were in that area and mm-hmm. unmasked, they would have to be alone. Even at the facility or the service site is located in a county with low to moderate community transmission. Very important. And another one is requiring at least weekly testing for exempted staff and staff who have not completed their primary vaccination series until the regulatory requirement is met, regardless of whether the facility or the service site is located in a county with low to moderate community um, spread. In addition to following the CDC recommendations for testing unvaccinated in facilities located in counties with substantially with substantial to high community transmission. And, and I think, Sue, this is probably going to be, uh, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's probably one of the, um, the best ways and the least disruptive ways mm-hmm. uh, uh, to prove that you're doing something more than what you're yeah. doing with those people that are fully vaccinated. Well, I feel like almost all of the above, you know, masking, right. trying to distance. Yeah. Right, right, and another one. Well, the next one though is something that you probably don't want to do, uh, and you might want to do the previous one. So the next one is saying requiring staff who have not completed their primary vaccination series to use a NIOSH-approved N95 or equivalent or higher level respirator for source control, regardless of whether they are providing direct care to or otherwise interacting with patients. Now that could be very expensive because that N95, you know, you could go through. You know, depending on how many patients that person sees during a day, you can go through it, you know, many, many uh, N95 masks. While the organizations can choose what they require. We should note that all of the accommodations or any of the accommodations that you make need to be addressed in the ASC policies and Mm -hmm. procedures should be outlined in there. Yeah. Continuing, facilities must have a process by which the staff may request an exemption from COVID-19 vaccination based on the applicable federal law. This process should clearly identify how an exemption is requested and to whom the request must be made. Additionally, facilities must have a process for collecting and evaluating such requests, including the tracking and secure documentation of information provided by those staff who have requested exemption, the facility's determination of the request, and any accommodation that that is granted. Note that staff who are unable to furnish proper exemption documentation must be vaccinated or the facility must follow the actions for unvaccinated staff. Certain allergies or recognized medical conditions may provide grounds for exemption. With regard to recognized clinical contraindications to receiving a COVID-19 vaccine, ASCs should refer to the CDC informational document. Summary document for interim clinical considerations for use of COVID-19 vaccines currently authorized in the United States. In general, CDC considers a history of severe allergic reaction, such as anaphylaxis, after a previous dose or to a component of the COVID-19 vaccine or an immediate, which would be considered within uh, four hours of exposure, allergic reaction of any severity to a previous dose or a known diagnosed allergy to a component of the COVID-19 vaccine to be a contraindication to vaccination with COVID-19 vaccines. And what's very important here is that the medical exemption documentation must specify which authorized or licensed COVID-19 vaccine is clinically contraindicated for the staff member and the recognized clinical reasons for that contraindication. The documentation must also include a statement recommending that the staff member be exempted from the ASC's COVID-19 vaccination requirements based on the medical contraindication. 
contraindications. So um, I don't know much about this, but what you're going to have to prove is that if there are three recommended uh, vaccines right now, Mm -hmm. uh, they have to be allergic to each of those three. You can't just have a blanket exemption or a a medical exemption Mm -hmm. uh, because you you have an an allergy to to one component. It has to be very specific. It has to be very specific, right. And a staff member who requests a medical exemption from vaccination must provide documentation signed and dated by a licensed practitioner acting within their respective scope of practice in accordance with all applicable state and local laws. The individual who signs the exemption documentation cannot be the same as the individual requesting the exemption, as we stated above. And uh, ASCs must have a process to track and secure documentation of the vaccine status of the staff whose vaccine is temporarily delayed. Uh, CDC recommends a temporary delay in administering the COVID-19 vaccination due to clinical precautions and considerations, such as individuals with acute illness secondary to COVID-19 illness and the individuals who received monoclonal antibodies or convalescent plasma or COVID-19 treatment, as was specified earlier. I think one of the biggest takeaways from the memo is that CMS requires you to have a contingency plan in place also. Mm -hmm. And so for staff that are not fully vaccinated, must develop contingency plans for staff who have not completed the primary vaccination series for COVID-19. The guidance is not clear as to whether you need to do this if all of your staff is already vaccinated. However, the regulation does state the policies and procedures must include at a minimum the following components. And one of those, as we read above, is contingency plans for staff who are not fully vaccinated for COVID-19. So we think you you probably have to have that in place. That would be, and since I'm a surveyor, that is my current Mm -hmm. interpretation of that particular section. So... Uh, regardless of, and again, you know, you might run into a situation in the future when they require uh, boosters Mm -hmm. uh, that this could happen even if you're fully vaccinated now. The guidance states that contingency plans should include actions that the ASC would take when staff have indicated that they will not get vaccinated and do not qualify for an exemption. But contingency plans should also address staff who are not fully vaccinated due to an exemption or temporary delay in vaccination, such as through the additional precautions. Facilities should prioritize contingency plans for those staff that have obtained no doses of any vaccine over the staff that have received a single dose of a multi-dose vaccine. For example, contingency plans could include a deadline for the staff to have obtained their first dose of a multi-dose vaccine. The plan should also indicate the actions the ASC will take if the deadline is not met, such as actively seeking replacement staff through advertising or obtaining temporary vaccinated staff until permanent vaccinated replacements can be found. So the memo goes on to outline how and what the surveyors will look at when they come on site. Um, We're not going to go into any detail, though, as you can read that all in the memo. Suffice to say that uh, it is extensive. And as a surveyor, I I must assume that this is going to take me at least an hour, uh, both going through the records and the policies. And that's if all of your staff is vaccinated. And a few hours, if any of them are unvaccinated, including those with exemptions. So Mm -hmm. uh, I've talked to uh, Lori and Ann, uh, who are uh, other surveyors with our company, and and they kind of agree with me that this is going to be uh, pretty time consuming. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the different levels of deficiency. So the highest level is what we refer to as immediate jeopardy. Immediate jeopardy means that you are going to be ordered to uh, immediately cease operations generally and have to take mitigating factors before you can open again. And immediate jeopardy will be called if 40% or more of your staff remain unvaccinated, creating a likelihood of serious harm or 
did not meet the 100% staff vaccination rate standard and observations of non-compliant infection control practices by staff. For example, the staff failed to properly don uh, uh, PPE and one or more components of the policies and procedures were not developed or implemented. So I guess the point there is you could even have 100% vaccination, but if they go through and see that you're not adhering to nationally recognized infection control standards and you don't have all those policies in place, you could end up with an immediate jeopardy. So the next level is condition level, and this is where uh, the surveyors determine that there's such a high level of concern that they feel that uh, another survey is going to be merited. And this would be if you did not meet the 100% staff vaccination rate standard and one or more of the components of the policies and procedures were not developed and implemented, or 21 to 39% of the staff remain unvaccinated, creating a likelihood of serious harm. And the standard level deficiency, which is a citation that just has to be cleared and, and a, a, a plan of correction created, uh, would happen if? 100% of staff are vaccinated and all new staff have received at least one dose and one or more components of the policies and procedures were not developed and implemented or did not meet the 100% staff vaccination rate standard but are making good faith efforts toward the vaccine compliance. I think that's... Uh, <laughs> That was a lot to go through, and I, uh, I apologize that we had to read a lot of it here just to be sure that uh, we, we got this correct. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, the wording actually came out of the QSO, the, mm-hmm. the uh, Quality and Safety Oversight uh, Memo, which, again, we provided a reference to in our show notes. It is very important, though, that you read through that memo as you prepare for a survey and as you develop your policies and procedures. Yes. You need to take this seriously. So I think one of the challenges that I think we're going to find is, well, obviously the policies and procedures need to be done. But second, mm-hmm. if you do have anybody that has a medical exemption or if you're in a state that allows a religious exemption, you got to have very good documentation as to the mm-hmm. approval of that. If it's a medical exemption, it's got to be a doctor that's signing off on it, indicating that he's reviewed the medical exemption and agrees with the decision of the mm-hmm. practitioner. So yes. that could be quite controversial, I think. And I think where we're going to have significant problems is uh, really with those allergies and making sure that mm-hmm. uh, if they're granted an exemption uh, because of allergies, that they are able to prove that they're allergic to each, each one of yeah. the, uh, the vaccines. So. And just a, a really important note, with any of this kind of things, when you're dealing with with possible, you know, job issues with your employees, that you do consult with a lawyer. Absolutely. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we will visit with the staff of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies during their fall 2021 retreat, where they discuss what is going on in the regulatory world, recent challenges, and how to meet those challenges, and how the podcast and AHS is adapting to provide you with the help you need to comply. Our listener patron program, also known as ASC Central, has really taken off over the past 12 months, and we are so grateful to all of our over 100 members. Our patron members help support our efforts here on the podcast and get a number of great benefits also. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is the longest-running podcast dedicated exclusively to the ASC industry. ASC Central provides members with a wealth of management tools and resources, including regular members-only Zoom sessions with John and other members to discuss relevant topics, quarterly Zoom meetings where we update patron members with important issues in the ASC industry, periodic study sessions for leaders that are planning on taking the CASC or CAPE exam, and access to a large database that includes federal regulations, 
interpretive guidelines in the state regulations, checklists for administrators and nurse managers, example meeting minute templates, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments, and example forms, and much, much more. Members also get discounts on books written by John Gailey, ranging from $10 to $80 per book, and can even schedule a personalized mock survey with John and save over $1,000. For more information and to access this additional content, please visit ASCPodcast.com or ASC-Central.com. So this is John Gailey. I'm here at our fourth annual Ambitory Healthcare Strategies Retreat here in Spenceport, New York. I cannot believe as I'm sitting here today, uh, the crowd I have around me. You know, when we started this out four years ago, it was a Christmas party. And I think there were six of us here, right? And today I'm sitting with, uh, you know, 14 of my colleagues here from this company, as well as some people that are joining us remotely from North Carolina and from uh, Lockport. Uh, and then uh, we have uh, you know, Ann Geyer here from Florida. So I do want to, uh, all we're going to do is I'm just going to go quickly around the room to introduce, uh, have everybody introduce themselves with the company. And then we're going to ask some questions and talk a little bit about some of the discussions we've had regarding the ASC industry. So starting with Alex over there. This is Alex Borneman, Director of Operations with Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. I'm Amy Durbano, Regulatory Consultant. And this is Sue Cronkite. Senior Nurse Consultant with AHS and co-host of the podcast. Mary O'Day, Consultant. Mike D'Ambrosio, Regulatory Consultant. Zach Calarius, Financial Consultant. Tony Lyons, Financial Analyst. Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Education and Senior Consultant. Laura Plummer, Regulatory Consultant. Lori Rodericks, Clinical Director. Director of Clinical Services. Jenna Alvarez, Senior Consultant. This is, of course, John Gailey. I own the company. Go ahead. Ann Geyer, Chief Nursing Officer. The Masters, Life Safety Support. And Kathy Foti, Senior Nurse Consultant. So we have a lot of new people uh, with us here. So I'm, I'm having to lead them through our uh, our protocol here for the podcast. So bear with us here. Uh, one of our goals here is to kind of discuss the changes that have uh, that we have decided upon uh, for the next year as we prepare our services, you know, the service offerings that we have at Ambitory Healthcare Strategies and make sure we meet the needs and, and uh, requirements of, uh, of our clients. Uh, but I thought we would do that by just introducing some of the challenges that we've had over the last year. And let's just start with leadership. I think uh, one of the challenges that we've had coming out of the pandemic is the loss of senior leadership in most of it, many, if not most of our organizations, as well as the challenge that has driven clients to us. So we recognize now that uh, many senior leadership people are retiring, leaving the industry, and it's leaving a huge gap. And as a result of that, we have been making some pretty significant uh, changes in the educational offerings of the ASC podcast, including our leadership uh, programs, such as our boot camps. But I would just like to open this uh, question up to uh, to everyone. You know, what is what are some of the leadership challenges that we have been experiencing? Uh, and I'm going to start with uh, actually Alex. Alex, talk a little bit about some of the uh, some of the challenges you've had with some of your clients recently. Yeah, I think a, a lot of it stems from um, a lot of the leadership getting called into the operating rooms and especially one of my specialties is life safety. And 
life safety items are pretty low on their uh, on the nurse manager or the administrator's list if they're if they're getting called into you know surgeries and having to actually work on the floor. And they're having less and less time to be able to take care of the things that are related to quality improvement, you know, seeking strategic direction for the organization, preparing for surveys, for example, and making sure that all of those checklists are up to date, you know, and, and you know, even making sure that all of your staff are, are getting their competencies done, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to pass it on to uh, Judy. Judy, talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you've seen. You also are a senior consultant that deals with some of those you know, some of these issues, and you've had some significant problems also. Yeah, well, we've all had significant problems. The biggest thing I've come across this year, and I'm sure it is, you know, post-pandemic related, um, we have had a, a, um, succession problems. You know, right. we have nurse managers or, or administrators look at what life became after the pandemic and said, you want to know what, I'm going to retire or I'm going to, I'm going to walk away from this for now. And not that I don't get it, I completely get it. But your average center is busy and doesn't really have succession planning as, as, as something that's important to them. So here we are now. I have a brand new nurse manager, has never had the job before, is also working clinical, like Alex says, because now there's just not the staff that used to be. So that partner's manager, while she's learning to do a job that I've always said was unbelievably difficult and unappreciated. Um, so now she's trying to learn that, be a floor nurse, be be our surveillance nurse, be everything all at once. And as a company, we're real helpful. Like we do everything we can to support these people, but I think we've gotten to the point where even our support isn't enough for some of these centers. Yeah. And that's worrisome, I think. Jenna, you deal with uh, our startups and uh, just uh, getting them through the beginning when often they have almost no resources or no resources to begin with. And then trying to recruit people into those positions has been no easy task recently. Can you talk a little bit about what those challenges are and how you've been uh, helping them, you know, to get to that, to the point that they need to be at in order to be able to actually start operations? I think one of the biggest issues we're having right now is people are building these beautiful new facilities getting all the construction done and now they're finding that they're sitting waiting with their nice shiny new building because they don't have the ability to get the equipment in time yeah. due to the supply chain issues and so that's where we're seeing delays right now whereas you have the normal construction delays that you know you're going to have or you know most people plan for a little right. bit of you know potential um but now it's you know i have one surgery center that can't get the lights for the or and so they're just you know, they've got, they got the keys this past week. I don't think they're going to probably open till March at this point because they just can't get what they need to open. Um, staffing, again, it's hard to even plan for staffing because you can't even, you don't even know when you're going to open your doors. So they're working on finding staff, but where, where are you finding staff? No one can find staff these days. And uh, luckily the centers that I'm currently working with have good administrator and nurse manager right off right the day, off the day, <laughs> which yeah. is a huge benefit because we don't always have that sometimes and that's you know if you don't have a strong nurse manager or a strong administrator when you're starting up it's it's really hard to put the right pieces in place um so i i think what has surprised some of the centers is how much work goes into putting things together like your policy manual like Oh, but you're providing the policy manual. Yes, I'm providing a template for the policy manual, but 
you are the ones who are determining how your center is running on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's a lot of input that we need from you to finish that policy manual. So we've been meeting for an hour to a week for the past six, eight weeks. I don't even remember how, you know, going through a chapter or two with a week. And then, you know, she's going back through the administrator and the nurse manager who remembers working on it with me is going back throughout the week and getting answers to all the questions that come up during those conversations. And so I really enjoyed doing it that way because I think it brings up a lot of questions of, oh, well, we don't have that contractor. Oh, we don't, I don't know how we're going to do that. So. Well, often those people that are being brought in from, uh, you know, to these startups have little or no experience in the ASC industry. They might be coming from the hospital or an office space or for an office based practice and learning all the things that they need to learn. In addition to dealing, you know, that's something that they'll have to deal with for the rest of their their careers, you know, with that organization uh, on top of having to learn something you know, dealing with, you know, a, a one-time thing, learning all the life safety issues that they have to deal with the construction, um, you know, getting past that initial survey, you know, usually two surveys, one for licensure, one for certification uh, is is no uh, easy challenge. And of course, you know, ultimately what we're going to talk about when we get to the end here is, you know, what are some solutions out there, you know, some suggestions as to how to, how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, two individuals who, who just joined us who uh, were leaders in uh, their respective organizations and they provide a unique perspective. Uh, I'd like to introduce Tony Lyons, one of my, my dear friends. Tony is responsible, he is to blame for me being in this industry uh, because 30 years ago when I first met Tony, he was the uh, chief financial officer for a major health system in, uh, in the, uh, the Western part of New York State. Tony, thank you very much for introducing me to this industry. You are totally to blame for this. But, you know, later in your career, after you uh, almost retired from, from the hospital environment, you chose to, to go with the surgery center. And you've recently kind of retired from that organization. But you got that organization through the pandemic. Can you talk about, uh, you know, coming from a hospital environment? I think that's probably one of the more interesting things. So many of our people now are coming from the hospital environment. What were, what were some of those things that you had to deal with that works to totally different in the ASC environment from what you experienced in the hospital? Well, one thing uh, in the ASC environment, not only myself, but many of uh, my nurse employees also came from the hospital environment. And... They're, they were less self-sufficient because there are so many supporting departments in a hospital. Right. Risk management, uh, you know, and the infection control. And so people... Credentialing. Credentialing. Yeah. People would come in with the clipboards and take care of this and that. And, you know, the nurses would make fun of them. But now here, they had to do things that uh, they didn't wear more than one hat to right. take care of the patient. So, um, so that was a challenge, and it still is a challenge. And some of them have been there for years uh, to uh, orient to those types of things. It was, it was kind of like in, in the in the hospital industry itself when a, a nurse would be promoted into a you know management uh, level. Often we neglected to educate them. They they often thought they would be now super nurses. Yeah. Uh, rather and not realize the administrative things they need to pick up to do. So that's a challenge. And then of course. Uh, you're self-sufficient, not just in one position, but the whole entity. Right. Uh, while it's really nice to be uh, have the whole operation uh, as uh, a, an entity that's light on its feet compared to lumbering hospitals that are hard to get anything done, 
you still had to take care of everything. And you, the, the credentialing uh, for one doctor is no different than that credentialing for an Article 20, at least in New York State, for, a, for a, a hospital. So you have a lot of less doctors, but taking care of the credentialing, the personnel files, all of those types of uh, administrative things. I was you know, mainly from the finance and administrative side. But then at the same time, uh, as, as an administrator, having to work with all of the nurses, all of the... Uh, you know, I was the driver for the quality assurance. I was the driver for all of those those things. So I can see where being a nurse, uh, you know, nursing medical background in that position that I had has its advantages, but then the administrative side would have fallen off. So it, it's quite a challenge to get the right blend of person to take a lead, I think, in these organizations, and then to build the, the, the critical positions of, you know, a nurse manager, administrator, and uh, medical director, you know, to to uh, as well as educate your your small ownership board yeah. about your responsibilities is um, it's it's challenges that are really a lot different than the hospital environment where you have so many supports and you're kind of on you yeah. know sitting on top of the deep blue sea. Where here you're this is your own fishing pole and you got you got to do a whole deal. So. Well, you brought up a very good important point is that. Um, uh, there isn't uh, owners in surgery centers are often uh, not knowledgeable about how restrictive or how regulated they they are, even if they've been through it before, and, or and they they don't always understand where we're heading right now, which is toward more regulation, uh, you know, more control and, and tougher surveys. A frequent comment that we're hearing right now is, "Oh, we passed the survey fine last time." Or they've never brought that up. You know, we might point something out during the mock survey. You know, I'm looking at Lori here, um, even though her microphone is down. Is that on purpose? Or? I think it's tired. It's tired. <laughs> so, you know, Lori will point things out to a, uh, you know, to an organization. And they'll say, I've never had to deal with that before. You know, don't worry about it. We'll pass the survey. And we're saying, no, um, you know, maybe the survey will catch it. Maybe they won't. But do you want to be the one to find that out, you know, during the survey? Yeah. No, it's it's it can be very uh, annoying um, and, and also discouraging <laughs> because if you're trying to give advice to a center to only make it better for them and their patients and they choose not to listen, you know, all we can do is educate. And that's, I think, a good portion of our job at um, AHS is that we educate people how to tighten screws, <laughs> how to wash their hands, you know. If, if only everybody could see the behind the scenes here to pull off this uh, uh, this podcast in our in our uh, high-tech uh, organization where I just pulled a screwdriver out in order to fix that whole microphone problem. Yeah. Kathy uh, Foti, you are uh, relatively new to us. You are joining us remotely from uh, North Carolina. You uh, just joined us, I mean, literally within last couple last month or so, and you're going full-time with us very shortly. But you came as the quality improvement nurse, uh, leadership position in a facility up in New Hampshire. So talk a little bit as you were, uh, again, you were in the hot seat during the pandemic and uh, dealing with ongoing quality issues that, um, of course, were enormous during the pandemic. Talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you had in that hot seat and also dealing with those uh, the staffing challenges that were continuous also. Um, the biggest, I think the biggest challenge probably for our facility, as well as many of the facilities in New Hampshire, was continuing to do safe patient care while 
dealing with your own staff um, having quarantine issues or um, other personal issues, which created staffing issues. I think in not only the staffing end of things, as we've discussed today, um, I think we've all found the fact that people have decided um, that the work-life balance has changed when they wanted to leave. And so with on in the same line that Judy has said, the succession, planning out how um, the facility is going to um, bring on good management. How are we going to train these managers overall to take the place of somebody that's been there 20, 25 years? Uh, this younger generation um, has really, really great, educated, uh, knowledgeable staff, but the component of regulation, the component of um, mentoring someone is so important. And I think that's looking in the future is, is a great service that one needs to have. And it's almost like you were setting Ann Geyer up for, uh, for the next part here. And we didn't even plan this, Kathy, but thank you very much. And again, I appreciate that, you know, we got such a wide mix of individuals here. And uh, as we finish up this leadership segment, I'm going to turn it over to... Uh, to Ann to talk a little bit about, you know, Ann is really, uh, you know, somebody that uh, has worked most of her career in mentoring individuals and making sure that they uh, put themselves in a position that they're ready for leadership. Talk a little bit about, you know, where you see we're heading right now and what can be done to try to prepare people for that future. Thank you, John. I think one of the first things is you have to identify the potential successors. So every day that you go into work as an administrator or as a manager, um, copy manager, infection preventionist, be on the lookout for who could step into your shoes should you retire, should you get sick, should you decide that you, you've had it and you just can't take it anymore. And once you've identified those people, then you give them all the tools you can to train them. Not everybody wants to move into management. Do not be a dead horse into saying you will be a manager because they'll be a bad manager. So identify people who have the potential and then give them every tool in your toolbox to allow them to succeed. I think the biggest thing you can do is if you set somebody up for failure by not training them adequately. And if you ignore the educational sessions, if you ignore the meetings that they could attend, if you ignore the introductions through networking, which John and I both love to network and we know everybody, you owe it to the people you're training to give them those same opportunities. And then set high levels of expectations for those people. Because a lot of times, if you set the bar high, they'll achieve what, what you ask them to do. If you just maintain status quo, that's what they'll do because they don't know that they can do more. So, so challenge them. People think that we're not a regulated industry. I mean, there's a huge misconception out there that ASCs are a piece of cake. You come to work, Tony addressed it. You get people, all of my colleagues have addressed that. People come to work from a hospital and they think, oh, this will be a piece of cake until they find out we're standalones. We don't have those departments that back us up. And if a piece of equipment dies, you're it. You either become a mechanic really quickly or you have to abort the case. 
So your managers need to know that. They need to be trained on what to do if this happens because we don't have immediate response teams. Um, we are heavily regulated. I think COVID has wreaked havoc on us in that right now we're dealing with the COVID vaccine mandate. It's on again, it's off again, it's on again. Do you have a plan B for if all your employees are vaccinated? I look at centers, I'm a surveyor for AAAHC as are Lori and John and Jim Masters. We go in there and they don't have a plan B. They haven't thought beyond the fact that, well, if it happens, it happens. Yes, but 13 of your employees aren't vaccinated. Are you prepared to shut down cases? That's all part of the mentoring program. You're a standalone. You have to know how to make decisions quickly. And quickly is a key. We don't manage by committee. Would you all agree on that, everybody yeah, around us? We don't have committees in surgery centers. So you have very small group of people that make that decision. And then sometimes it's your administrator and they have to act quickly. And they inform the board and say, but we've got to do something right now. And then they act on it. So mentoring, training, educating, it's huge. But start working now on who in your center can step up to that plate and start giving them the tools. And we're going to talk about uh, some solutions uh, that, you know, uh, that you can do, you know, free solutions, uh, moderately priced solutions, expensive solutions, you know, on that whole gamut of, of, of those uh, those opportunities as we as we finish uh, up. But I wanted to move on to life safety. Uh, uh, Jim Masters has joined us here. You know, one of he's a life safety surveyor, a, a former uh, New York State uh, surveyor. And he has a lot of knowledge in this area. And of course, Alex Borneman who uh, also works in the life safety side for us, um, uh, is here too. Um, life safety has become a huge issue. When we look in, in the last year, in the last surveys that we've had, the challenges that we've had, many of those surveys have uh, really had major uh, life safety uh, issues identified. By the way, issues that had always been there. I mean, these are not necessarily issues that have been newly uh, that created, but issues that have always been there, but now they're coming up as a citation of the survey. Um, Jim, do you want to start talking a little bit about the experiences that you've had recently and what that means for the Average Surgery Center? I can. So, you know, let's start out with a new center because some uh, statistics were given to us at the GU meeting for AAAHC, and I think Ann, you were involved with uh, that meeting as well, but they, the statistics showed that with early option surveys and initial surveys for new centers, that life safety was the number one factor in, in stopping them from getting their accreditation. And it was typically like a firewall issue or full station related to the fire alarm system or the EES system. So these uh, life safety systems within the buildings are actually preventing them from getting getting their uh, team status on their. And, and, uh, so, Jim, let me uh, stop for a second just to make sure our listeners understand what that means is that when you go through an early option survey and there is a condition level citation, in other words, a major citation there, you fail that survey and you will have to go through the whole cycle again which means that you will not get your Medicare certification, you will get, not get paid by Medicare until you go through that cycle again. So that, so what you've just described, of course, is a very serious situation that is going to cost a substantial amount of money for that organization. I'm sorry to interrupt, but go ahead. No, that's, that's an important factor. And, and it, believe it or not, some of these uh, citations 
are really relatively easy fixes. However, because it is a Medicare team status survey, it's wrong at the time of survey and there's no time for correction. So it's most important to have everything in place prior to the survey. So, um, so that's with the new center. And with the existing center, you know, you the answer you get is always, well, it's been this way forever, but doesn't mean that it's compliant right at this time. So it's always important to go through your life safety systems, EES, net gases, uh, sprinklers, fire alarm systems, training, education, fire drills, disaster drills, exiting requirements, uh, you know, the, the entire gamut of life safety uh, checklists in order to, uh, you know, make sure that you're compliant for the service. Alex, I'm, I'm going to look at you for a second here because uh, I'm going to play the devil's advocate. You know, Alex, uh, you're a life safety surveyor, and you just cited me because I don't have an electrical uh, emergency electrical system that's compliant. Um, you know, yeah, I got a couple breaches in the firewalls, but Alex, I am so small. I'm a tiny little center. I don't do, I just do general anesthesia. You know, I don't do anything serious. Like I'm not a hospital. Why do I have to do these things? Go for it, Alex. <laughs> um, I, I only do general surgery. I mean, wait, we can't make this stuff up, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah, we've unfortunately had many of these conversations. And really the, the best answer is, well, and usually it comes out of why why haven't I been cited for this in the past if it's really a problem? You know, like Jim was saying, and and the answer to that is life safety surveyors are getting a lot more savvy. Um, and they really don't care that you didn't pass it. Right, right, right. It's, it's right. not relevant. Don't, don't even bring that up. Right, right. Not relevant. Unfortunately, um, as an AHJ, Triple HC has the right to you know, every survey is part of that process of them making the determination about whether you meet the the standards and the codes for life safety. And if you're one of those centers where your systems are borderline, you're running a risk every survey. Um, you know, and you that's why your documentation needs to be really, really good. You need to have risk assessments in place. Um, but yeah, nope, you... Every survey is uh, is unique, and every surveyor comes in with different specialties, different backgrounds. Right. You know, you might have a HVAC guy coming in, and he's probably not going to know much about your your uh, electrical system. Right. And he'll so he'll do a preliminary, you know, look over it to see if there's any major red flags that he can see. But you know, in, in some surveyors might be a little bit more lenient. They might say, "Oh, well, you know." Clearly, you had an in-depth conversation with your state about this issue. They're okay with it. I'll be okay with it. Not every surveyor is going to say that. Go ahead, Tony. Well, I, uh, just on this point, uh, you know, when a physician reasons that uh, they're not a hospital, yeah. and, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be such a big deal. Actually, it's going to be a lot bigger deal for Medicare, the state, or the accrediting body to close the hospital down. Yeah, it's going to be a lot more heavy lifting to close a hospital down because of some infraction of regulation. But in fact, as a smaller provider, as a surgery center, you are at risk. Yeah, you are at risk to be closed down, and they won't blink because there's there's plenty of other services. It's a lot less paperwork to show. A lot less paperwork, yeah. and, and and no one's going to be crying that much about some doctors losing their ability to practice at a surgery center where they can go to the hospital. Yeah, so. 
the answer is you've got a lot higher risk than a hospital. That's very good point. I well, I understand that because that is how they think about it. Yeah. So we actually have experience with that, Tony and Alex and, and Jim, is that, you know, we've been called into situations where they, we, we've had a couple of situations we've had to deal with recently where we've been hired after the place was shut down and we've had to go back and uh, help them get back up and running. And I'll, I'll state that we have two of those situations. One uh, shut down in January of 2021. We got them open finally uh, by, I think it was uh, April, late April. Uh, they were losing like $200,000 a month uh, during that time frame. Uh, a lot of money that they were lo they'd lost because of their failure to, uh, you know, to follow the conditions for coverage. One center was closed in August of 2019, and they are still not open. And those were life safety yeah. issues there. Uh, so this is, we're not just, we're not making this stuff up. Uh, but more importantly, we have situations right now where people have come to, uh, very recently, a, a center that had a glass wall into their surgery center. They've had it since the beginning of that organization. No certain, and by the way, you shouldn't have glass walls in your opening to a surgery center uh, in general. And they, um, they've never been cited before. Three surveys, never been cited before. And in this survey that just occurred about a month ago, uh, they were told that they had to replace it. And of course, the doctors are saying, oh, we're wavered under that. Or, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, nobody brought it up before, so we don't have to worry about it. Uh, Jim, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, what, how much as a life safety surveyor do you take that into consideration when, before you cite them? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, so each state is different. And the states have, some states have certificate of need program where the state surveyors will accept uh, certain components of the uh, separation walls. And, but, you know, this is CMS. This is from the federal side. So it's a little more stringent than what the state might have uh, allowed. So it's definitely a compliance issue for separation for the glass walls. Some cases they would have a glass wall with sprinklers on either side in every vein of the window or the wall, uh, but it's only acceptable in an atrium situation where you have you know, at least two stories, two stories high. So, um, yeah, it's been you know a lot of centers have been allowed to continue with that. However, going forward with AAAHC, they are not going to allow it, and they have to have the actual firewall. So, yeah. So. Be careful moving forward about that. Um, that that if you do have that type of situation, you might want to bring somebody in. Um, I, I do want to uh, finish this uh, section up by just bringing up the importance of having. Uh, so, Jen, yeah, Jenna, you have been running into situations recently where uh, I, I did a, uh, a walkthrough. You and I did a walkthrough at a new site. Uh, we were told not to worry about uh, about life safety because it's a hospital-owned surgery center, and the hospital is on top of things. They uh, they know everything that's uh, going on, and there won't be any problem. And uh, I walked through, and instantly, I'd say within because I'm so smart, of course. Uh, I, <laughs> I my point being, this was so obvious that within five minutes, you know, I already identified three items that literally would cause them to fail that survey. You know, fortunately, we were there and we were able to step in. And we were early enough in the process that we were able to fix the issues with right minimal cost. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't, you know, well, they weren't totally. It's still going to be expensive, but they're all like tearing down walls or right. anything. 
So here, I, I just wanted uh, Jim and Alex, just kind of a quick and dirty, like bullet point. What are the, some things that you can do very quickly? You know, I mean, obviously I think our, our real recommendation is get a life safety, you know, mock survey in before you, before your next survey and certainly before you open a, a new center. I mean, I can't imagine in today's environment not doing that. But if you don't do that, what are some quick and dirty things that, um, uh, that you should be looking at? I'll start with Jim. So, you know, we look for the logs. We look to see that the logs are maintained for all the various uh, PMs that they do on their various systems. And if we, you know, if we can see that they're doing a good job of their weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual checks, then, you know, you get a little comfort zone in knowing that you're dealing with a center that's, that's well-maintained and it's, they're doing their part on the life safety issue. And then it comes to the contractor's maintenance or, or third-party contractors that they're bringing in for the med gas system, the EES system, fire alarm systems, sprinkler systems, all the various components, generator maintenance, generator testing. So, you know, the list goes on. But if we can see that, that they're doing a good comprehensive maintenance package and the logs are in place, it kind of it kind of gives the surveyor a little comfort zone to know that they don't have to dig too deep to see exactly what's going on. Whereas if documentation is poor, then the surveyor is going to dig into those areas, and that's where the problems are going to come up. And also, Jim, uh, one thing we need to, to to remind people of too is uh, every time the surveyor comes in, they're going to look uh, also not only at stuff that's happened in the last couple of years, but they're going to want to look at any installation records. To make sure you're still maintaining those things so don't throw out all those things that you got uh you know when you first started the surgery center up absolutely any new furnishings uh you know place spread ratings on new curtains and and chairs and carpets if they have them you know various various things you want you know fire door inspections is, is kind of a new thing on the market and you know they want to make sure they're keeping up with those annually and and really records of everything uh if they expanded or replace the generator, you know, you want all the documentation from the initial build-out or, or replacement. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, and going off of um, what Jim said, um, in terms of contractors, there's a lot of contractors that solve a lot of the problems at ASCs, but there's also a lot that cause problems. Yeah. Um, so or, or they feel that, uh, hey, I got past the state inspection, I got past the local inspection, I'm all set, I don't want to do anything else. Well, well, in, in part of when you bring people in from the outside, they don't always know the regulations of your ASC. Mm -hmm. And so looking, especially for existing centers, um, but this is true even for new centers, looking at your firewalls to make sure that, you know, your IT company or whatever uh, your HVAC company, whoever's been running pipes or wires through your walls in the last three years since your previous survey, or or since uh, you know the fire marshal came in and checked your walls if you're if you're a new center, you know making sure that there's no new penetrations, um, and then also same thing on the uh, electrical panels. You know, oftentimes you you get a new piece of equipment and you'll have it wired. Um, you know, and they might not, the person wiring it might not know your regulations and what branch that needs to be on. Um, and that can cause major problems if it goes on the life safety branch and it's not supposed to be there. And labeling in all branches, always, always an issue during a survey. 
what I wish I could what they they us. Maybe I'll be able to figure out where all the circuits are. <laughs> right. It's it's always regardless of what type of uh, EES system they have, the labeling is probably number one issue. They might have everything they need, and it could be properly installed. However, the labeling doesn't provide that information to the surveyor. So that's a, that's a, you know, it's a number one ticket item. I did want to mention something that's uh, come up recently too, is that in the last two uh, uh, deemed status surveys that we've had, um, the uh, life safety surveyor and the health surveyor have not been at, uh, there at the center at the same time. Very unusual circumstance. It's in the past, it was unknown. Um, one uh, survey that just happened, the separation was two months. In other words, the health surveyor was in there two months before the life safety surveyor was there, which meant that there was a delay in the report for, um, you know, for, for two months. So uh, be prepared because, and again, this is uh, staffing related there, you know, the uh, surveyors such as Jim, uh, you know, are, are overwhelmed. How many, how many surveys did you do in the last year, Jim? Oh, with, with AAA and with you guys over 70. Over 70 surveys in 12 months. It's amazing that you, you haven't collapsed. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but, but be prepared for some unusual things like that. Uh, Jim, thank you. So we've just discussed uh, uh, challenges that everyone is facing right now in the industry, the, you know, the issues in trying to get through a survey, uh, the uh, uh, life safety challenges we have, and of course, especially, and really what it comes down to in the end, the, the challenges in uh, developing leaders for the, for, you know, our, our new situation right now and, and raising them and developing them into effective uh, 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 people for our operation. So let's talk a little bit about what we can do. And let's just start by the stuff that everybody should be doing anyway, you know, relatively like uh, totally no cost, as well as those things that are relatively inexpensive. We'll start, let's, let's push the podcast. Obviously you're all listening to the podcast right now, 145 plus episodes. Um, that's a great resource for you. Uh, we have slowed down a little bit this year because of the challenges we've had. We have the same issues you all have out there of, uh, of staffing and trying to, to keep up with this. We do promise in 2022 that we'll, uh, we'll try to make, uh, make up for that and continue to provide you know, the great content that we've been doing. And also, you know, keep in mind, if you're a member of the patron program, there's a lot of great resources that you can have, including weekly uh, drop-in sessions that you can talk to us. Um, and we have a lot of fun, Ann and, and uh, Lori, uh, you, uh, you you spent a lot of time on those uh, those Saturday morning sessions. And I have to admit, and Sue too, of course, uh, you know, we have fun and we have a nice discussion. It's almost like uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, a great opportunity to get to know our colleagues and talk really big picture items. And then the other thing that I really want to encourage people to, uh, to do is join the ASC Association, please. It's a great organization, provides a lot of great resources. Uh, yes, the membership fee is expensive, but there are a lot of things that you get for that membership, including access to emails, newsletters, um, you know, articles, uh, an online forum that you can post you know, questions. Um, for the cost, it is an incredible benefit, as well as being able to access uh, webinars and, you know, live conferences. So definitely think about that. And if you're in a state, if you're lucky enough to be in a state that has a state association that's active, uh, please join that also, not in place of, but also because I think that you'll find that uh, the benefits of having somebody or, or an organization that helps you uh, uh, get through the state regulations as well 
as the opportunity to speak to and, and uh, mingle with uh, people from your own area would be very helpful. So let's face it, sometimes you're going to be in a situation where that's just not enough, that you don't have the time or you can't find leaders in your organization that have that experience to even be able to know the questions to ask. Uh, so let's start with leadership training. Uh, Lori, Ann, Sue, and I, and of course, our, our whole team is involved in, in mentoring of all of our clients, but we do put on boot camps uh, and training programs through the ASC podcast. All that information is available on ASCpodcast.com. Please avail yourself of those programs. We do two boot camps a year for nurses. That's in May and November. And we do two administrator boot camps. Next one's coming up in February. And the one after that will most likely be in August, uh, as well as self-paced uh, versions of it where you can sign up and, and just do it at your own leisure by, uh, by watching uh, recordings of that. They are not um, you know, inexpensive options, of course. Uh, that's because there's a lot that goes on. It's not only watching and or participating in uh, these, uh, these four-day conferences, but also ongoing mentoring online, uh, emails, and access to a huge database of information. Uh, so you'll never go it alone, you know, if you have access to that. But, you know, sometimes, I'm looking at Ann here, she's sitting next to me, sometimes that's not enough, Ann. It's not enough. It's not enough. So one of the, the things that we've been talking about the last two days here uh, during our annual retreat is, you know, what can we do for those organizations that, first of all, really take this to heart. I mean, you, you've got to have really good leaders, I mean, really good owners that are willing to put the money into investing. developing, invest in you. Uh, so we have developed a new product that uh, we are rolling out now. Uh, as we sit here today, we don't have a fancy name for it, right, Ann? No. Um, but it is a mentoring program where uh, you basically sign up with us, and on a monthly basis you pay. It's a fixed fee program, but you have uh, access to all of the resources that we give as part of any of the boot camps, uh, as well as, you know, one-on-one mentoring. Sometimes we can even include one-on-one, -on -one, you know, on-site too, right. like maybe you want to do a, a mock survey. Um, but Ann, why don't you just talk a little bit about the things that we've discussed on that and, and how that would look. It all came about almost accidentally. And the first one, because I've just been with the company, John, since June 1st. That's true. And it was kind of accidental because someone had heard me speak at a meeting and said, can you help a surgery center out we want to work with you and we don't know what we don't know. So that led to our administrators leaving is taking all of our, her information with us has not given us any transition and we're lost. We need you to help mentor the administrators. So all of a sudden we developed this mentoring program, which I love to do anyway, but part of it is almost handholding you through the process, trying to explain to you what, because you don't know the questions to ask. You have no clue what to ask because you don't know what you don't know. And that's what they all say. So you start off with all the tools that I have are now at their, for their use. And we share those tools. And then I start making the connections. So I'm, I was living in South Carolina for a long time. One of my mentees is in Myrtle Beach. And so I then networked her with some of the other people in South Carolina, got her involved with the South Carolina State Association. So sometimes she doesn't even call me now. She knows directly who to go to at the South Carolina Association to ask certain questions pertinent to her. And then it grew from there because now it's expanding. We're in New Jersey and we're, I'm helping two centers and just have the third all say the same thing. We're new to the administrator's role. We don't have a clue. And so we developed this program 
basically it's just a, a roadmap for here's what you're going to need to know and here's how you get to that point where you feel comfortable realizing that we're your safety net so if you get into a situation where you you look at what you're supposed to know and say i don't even know where what i'm doing with this then you call us right away and we help you walk through it this company has a wealth of education and knowledge behind it so if i don't have the answer and i think every one of you in this room would say we don't have the answer we'll get it for you within 24 hours because we all know people that we can call we can access for their information and you get back to them. Well, all of a sudden, your credibility builds. The next thing you know, someone else is calling saying, so-and-so said that they didn't know what they were doing and you're helping them. And that's where we are today. And it's really been a lot of fun, but it's, it's created a whole new um, enterprise for us that we hadn't even planned on. At the last meeting, this never even came up. That's right. And it, and it uh, you know, it, it's something that we recognize fills in that that. Gap, and we're going to talk in a minute about how you know organizations such as ours can can actually do a lot of the work that you might, as an administrator or mm -hmm. nurse manager, might do. Uh, but this is that in between. This is almost a time limited. I mean, as long as you want yeah. uh, to receive these services, but you know, we we make the agreement. It can be extended. It can be shortened. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, we don't make long term agreements. So this is so this once is you feel like you've learned everything you need to know, you can say, "Am thanks a lot. We'll see you at the next ASCA meeting." And I'm happy when that happens because I feel like I've done my job. On the other hand, some of them just don't want to let go. For those right. of you that have ever mentored somebody in the surgery center, you know, sometimes it's knowing when to let go of the people that you're training. They have to fly on their own. Right. And so there's an element of that, too, where they they are flying on their own, but they know you're there if you need to be. I want to point out, too, that uh, so when we develop this program, it's not it's it's for all levels. So you've got administrators that need to be mentored. Now I'm looking at Lori, even though, and you're, you're involved in nurse managers too, but I'm looking at Lori because Lori does the nurse manager boot camp. You know, so another option that you have is to be mentored through the nurse manager program. We, you know, we literally do this with every single one of our clients. All of our nurse managers go through a, um, a mentoring program. We don't, I mean, it's not fancy. We just basically, uh, you know, send people in on a regular basis. And of course, we're available at all times. So as we go forward, we might be doing a little bit more formal. I think we are talking about a little bit more formal. But, you know, Lori, just talk a little bit about, you know, what you, how, how, how this would be useful for a new nurse manager, you know, coming into the industry and what a mentoring program would need for them. Well, I think it's the, the important part, you know, is that make sure that you realize you're not alone. Yeah, no, I think that's the biggest takeaway um, is that it's not. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're not just getting uh, a book and here you go. Learn, because um, that's how many of us in the in the world here had have learned to become uh, the nurse manager or the nurse administrator or whatever. It was just go for it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like you said, you've got you offer so many tools and. Uh, you know, our email, you mm -hmm. know, if you have questions, you can reach out. There's a person on the other end, usually, <laughs> you know, uh, that responds. But then, not on Christmas Day, but uh, well, most of the other you time. never know. But, but the other thing is, if you're able to attend the boot camps when they are live, now you're also making uh, connections with other people in the yeah. same boat, which is really good because networking is huge. I still reach out to people that I've met a hundred years ago. Yeah. You know, absolutely. and it's, it's great. It's just knowing that um, you're not by yourself. 
and that you can do it. And then maybe asking, because maybe you can't do it. And someone sometimes has to let you know that you're in over your head. But, right. you know, the whole point is, like Ann said earlier, it's not just you're the new nurse administrator um, or the new nurse manager. Um, you know, you want to be able to have the tools to be a success. And it's not limited to administrators and nurse managers. Alex, I'm putting you on the spot right now. Alex has been dealing with the life safety issue uh, all all day long during our boot camp. I'm sorry, or, or during our uh, our retreat here, Alex. I mean, uh, unfortunately, Jim had to leave us. Uh, he had other uh, things going on. Uh, but can you just talk a little bit about what you think a mentoring type of relationship with? Uh, I think it could go two ways. You know, maybe you have an environmental services person in your organization who's just going to need some life safety help because this is let's face face it, this is it's a serious as a nurse manager and, and a, an administrator, we just don't take it that seriously. And of course, the other challenge is that uh, you might need mentoring from a life safety person to be a nurse manager or an administrator yeah. too. Sure. So, you know, now this is in early development as we speak about it, but just talk a little bit about what you think, how, how that might look as you're mentoring somebody through these responsibilities. Yeah, so there's kind of two parts to mentoring life safety as, as I've, done it and as it's been done for me um part part of that is getting the person who's getting mentored in touch with the code books getting them to have the actual resources at hand so they can access the answers on their own but the second part to that of course is also mentoring through um you know established standards because they're the life safety codes are very complicated. Um, every life safety surveyor that I know always says, you know, no, no survey is all inclusive. There's always more to learn. Every life safety surveyor goes out on site and learn something new every single time yeah. they do a survey. And, and we'll catch things differently then. And we'll catch so, things yeah. differently. So, it, it's a constant road of improvement. And I, I truly believe, I, I mean, there's been mentors like we were talking about Jim Masters for me, yeah. you know, that is how people learn about life safety is through <laughs> mentoring. Um, it's usually pretty informal, but yeah, if you've got an environmental um, person on staff, they definitely should get mentored by somebody on somebody outside the organization hooking them up with somebody that knows life safety in and out um, who's been doing it for years is definitely an important thing to do. Um, or if you're an administrator and you're doing all the life safety things, having, having somebody to go to with questions and, and to get answers from it is very important. I mean, spending half your life, making logs for you know for the testing that you're doing is uh you know that's not a fun thing and there's there's organizations that have logs available and um right. you know you don't have to recreate the wheel as they say well and again i, I do want to point i mean this 
uh, sounding like a sales pitch to a certain degree, of course, you know, it is, but recognize that, you know, you can do this. I mean, if you have somebody else that you have met in a conference that can, that's willing to mentor you through this thing and, and you know, through all these things, for goodness sake, take advantage of it. But I'm going to look at Mike D'Ambrosio right now, because, you know, Mike is an example of, of kind of somebody that's been mentoring right now. You know, Mike joins us with a lot of exposure experience, immense experience from his industry time. And he, uh, what's that term? Uh, re- Tired? Retired. Retired. I, I don't understand that term, but semi-retired. Semi-retired. So, uh, so Mike retired recently and uh, joined us. Uh, he is, as was mentioned earlier, the uh, the husband of Judy D'Ambrosio, who is, who's been with us quite a while. Uh, but Mike, one of the things that you uh, are working on is learning about life safety. Uh, and it's not something that you actually have a lot of experience in, but of course you 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 enjoy you you've been you've been picking up a quick. Just talk a little bit about the experience and how valuable it is to have the mentoring relationship that you have with Alex and with Jim. I think uh, you know as, as Alex points out, uh, you can't know everything, and and the, and the way to start an industry is is to you know go to somebody that that has the experience. Right. Um, I come from a background of manufacturing. So uh, risk assessments and things like that, I'm familiar with, but not uh, in this type of environment, uh, a standalone surgical center. So uh, it's been very informative to me working with Alex on risk assessments and understanding that and and getting mentored by Jim, understanding where to go to look for the codes uh, and and getting a a base of ground uh, of of where to start. I think it's the fastest to actually dig into it. I had the pleasure of uh, traveling along on a survey. Yeah. Uh, and, and learned. It's funny how you use that term pleasure. Yeah, I, I seen that way at the time. Yeah, it did at all. But in that, in that uh, experience, I think I gained quite a bit of knowledge, much more yeah. so, you know, than, than just looking at the regs. Uh, yeah. So that mentoring really can connect and really bring up that learning curve. Yeah, in short order. Well, I bring up a very important point is that if we if we shift the way we look at surveys to that's being a mentoring, I mean, no survey is going to be perfect. You know, you're you're going to learn something from each of those and and use those surveyors to get as much information. I know when you you were on that life safety survey, you asked a lot of questions of the surveyor, gave you a wealth of information, and and obviously uh, helped you. Then it's a different attitude than trying to fight every single thing that, that's brought up, you know, learn from them. And that way you, you're prepared in the future. Exactly. So I'm going to shift, uh, I, you know, I, I'm looking across that. Oh, and there's Jim. Hi, Jim. <laughs> hands on the wheels. That's right. Hands on the wheels, Jim. I park a lot. <laughs> so I'm going to shift lastly to an area that we, uh, funny as this sounds, the, the company was started with a heavy focus on financial management. Uh, and uh, we thought in the beginning that we would be focusing on financial services to amateur surgery centers, and we ended up veering off into regulatory. However, as I'm sitting around this conference table here, I have four people uh, with finance background. Myself as a CPA, Tony Lyons just joining us also as a CPA in, the, in his past life. I've got uh, Alex Borneman, who has a uh, you know, bachelor's in business management with some uh, financial background, and um, Zach Calaritis, who is our financial consultant, uh, who is a double major in, in business management and financial uh, uh, management. Uh, and, 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 you know, we, what we started to realize is that uh, while we do limited services for our clients on that, uh, on financial issues, uh, we have 
an incredible capability to do this. And that is another thing that we have decided during this conference is that we are going to start offering financial services another option. I'm going to put Tony on the spot for a second here. Totally unexpected, Tony, but yeah, you can handle it. So, uh, you know, as we think about, um, and, and over the years, you and I have all, you know, from our accounting days to our administrator days, we know the challenges that you meet as, you know, to run the finances in an operation. And I think, uh, in a, I mean, all of the other things that we talked about are, you know, obvious, like nursing, administration, uh, life safety might not be so obvious. Hopefully we made it obvious to you now, but Another area that we, we have to talk about is, you know, ambulatory surgery centers are very different animals and running, doing the financial management in, in a uh, ASC is very different. So another thing that we uh, are looking to do is to provide mentoring resources, again, to like a business office manager, or if it's the administrator or heaven forbid, if it's the poor nurse manager, which does happen, you know, where the nurse manager is responsible for financial operations. Uh, and you did that, you know, in your time, um, you know, how, how would that look? What, you know, have you thought a little bit about what that might look like? You know, what types of services, you know, think about yourself, you know, going through, what were the things that you had to treat your uh, business people about? Well, uh, I don't want to take too long, but one thing I used to, uh, I used to, uh, I don't know if you say lecture, instruct uh, my nurses. Yeah. Is that um, when we send out the bill, yeah. the bill is an abstract uh, that, uh, that represents what's what was done and what we're going to get paid for. Yeah. But if the if Medicare or Blue Cross or some other payer comes and look at the basis for that bill, they look at the medical record. Very true. The medical record is the real bill. Yeah. So the medical record, of course, is to take care of the patient, but it also is our record for getting paid for the services that. That proof that that service yeah. was offered, right? So, you know, just to kind of tie the whole thing together, because it's so easy to, you know, separate those functions of, well, you know, you're doing this and there's a billion people over there, but they really need to work together. Yeah. So that's kind of a starting point for me to see how the whole thing works together. Then on that finance side, of course, you need, you need uh, it's, it's, a, it's an exacting yeah. measurement, you know, uh, just like, uh, you know, health, care itself is an exacting science with some art. <laughs> well, accounting is, is an exacting science with some art That's as well, right. uh, in order to you know present your um, accounts receivable in a rational way so that the board can understand it, so you can know where you're at, and compare it to other, other healthcare, other uh, ASCs to know where you stand, where your collection should be, and, um, and then just the financial presentations itself how that makes sense to the board of directors, how that makes sense to you and to, mm -hmm. to your management team, because it's important, I think, to bring in the, the lead managers, uh, you know, the, uh, nurse, nurse leaders, mm -hmm. uh, as well as, um, you know, uh, key the medical director or, you know, key board members to understand those, uh, uh, how, how they relate. Then there's a whole matter of the cost, the costing. Yeah. Uh, and mentioned that before, I'm sure the nurses have come up against that. It's a real irritation to you on one hand. On the other hand, it's 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 a it's a, a tremendous measurement, not only of the cost, but of you know the resources you're using. Another problem when you come from hospitals, use of resources, you know. So it really ties into the whole organization, but it, it's another language, uh, the whole finance aspect that uh, I think needs to have some uh, Understanding, you know, uh, foster with us and to take away the mystery. Of yeah. It. Um, and to, to know what to look for, you're not going to, you know, 
and if we made it to an accountant, but to understand how it really integrates in the whole thing, it's not just an irritation you have to put up with. Right. It really helps you to measure where the company is. So anyway. Well, and, and I think uh, this kind of how we're going to end here is just talking about how we've just described all of these things that you need to learn, you know, that you need to be uh, mentored on. Notice how all of them are interconnected. And Tony, you kind of just like circled right back to administrators and nurse managers, even nurse managers there that that as we're putting together these programs, by the way, as we're sitting here, it's like it's like another light bulb went off and and, and Lori and, and everybody else here. You know, it's just like, I wait a minute. You know, this is an interdisciplinary effort as we put together these mentoring programs. You're going to have a primary person. If you're a, a nurse manager going through a mentoring program, you're going to have a nurse that's going to be your primary mentor. But boy. It wouldn't be a bad idea to spend some time with Tony. It wouldn't be a bad idea to spend some time with, uh, um, you know, with our life safety people, um, you know, and, and that can be said uh, for everybody. Again, even the, a business manager better know how to talk to a nurse, better know how to talk to the administrator. And by the way, needs to spend a lot of time with life safety because that's where all of your expenses are going to be. So I leave you all with this. First of all, I, I do want to, on behalf of the ASC podcast, thank all of you for taking the time. Um, you've had a lot of things to do in the last two days as we have been, uh, you know, sitting down and talking about the future of ambulatory healthcare strategies. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you're sharing with our audience those things that are of, of extreme importance right now in the industry and how you might go about it. And again, we're, you know, obviously ambulatory healthcare strategies is there to provide mentoring relationships. And if you just can't do that, if you're just out of time, because, uh, you know, to, you know, I'm looking at Lori, you know, you're, you're so busy batting away the alligators that are nipping at your feet, hopefully sterile alligators. Depending um, on where I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, because you're in the operating room all the time or because you are, um, you're spending time trying to, you know, recruit new people. I mean, that, that, these are real life things. Then maybe it's time to think about outsourcing those services that can be outsourced. Inventory Healthcare Strategies is an organization that's there to be able to, um, you know, to, we can write your minutes, we can run your board meetings, we can run your quality improvement meetings, you know, write your policy manuals, do your educational programs. Um, you know, it's not a cheap option. And it's the type of service that you have when uh, you really find that that's a more cost-effective way of doing those services. But I, I'm hoping you're you're all getting that uh, the gist here that there's uh, there's free options, you know, all the way from the ASC podcast uh, and uh, and shall we say, you know, minor costs involved if you uh, are a member of ASC association or right. the state association all the way up to, you know, and, and a middle ground where you're getting mentoring and then, you know, the expensive option on that side. I will have to say, our, our company has grown, AHS has grown uh, dramatically, dramatically within the last year and a half because all of you out there are challenged with identifying leaders, uh, you're challenged with finding staff, you, there's not enough time in the day. And of course, in many cases, your business is growing also because people want to have operation surgery. They don't want to go to a hospital. So uh, please uh, think about all the uh, options we gave you and thank you very much for your time. So 
over the last four years, we've really struggled to get up-to-date information on state association meetings, and especially now with things being virtual, and yeah. it's just, we don't find that it's been all that useful or beneficial for, well, it, for our listeners. And so many people actually listen to the podcast well mm-hmm. after some of these events occur. I know, so I know. So I'm not sure the timeliness is, uh, is yeah, helpful. Yeah, doesn't make sense. So, so we're just going to close out each episode in the future with a summary of what's coming up with the podcast and our virtual conferences, and we'll mention John's upcoming speaking engagements. So we have uh, uh, five upcoming topics that we're going to have to get into within mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks here. Uh, first is the discussion of the Surprise Billing Act. Uh, next, an interview with Scott Megason regarding what to do when you're coding or billing staff leaves suddenly. That's kind of mm-hmm. a fascinating interview we did. We're going to do a focus segment on the ASC quality reporting and the changes in 2022. We're going to do a special interview with Amit uh, Jarwani from uh, SIS on data analytics and the future of data in the ASCs. And that sounds not so exciting, but it actually is very interesting because we talk about uh, EMR systems and where we're heading in the future and how uh, how those things could be really beneficial. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to do our annual review of the OIG report on the compliance of accrediting organizations with the conditions for coverage during the surveys. And that's actually very important because it also uh, that particular report also gives us some advice or some some. Uh, indication of what are some of the major uh, citations occurring in CMS surveys. And some of our upcoming training programs. The Administrators Boot Camp is a virtual training program for new administrators and administrators that are preparing to take the CASC exam. The program includes weekly volunteer drop-in sessions with John and other staff from AHS, access to a large database of information, and a comprehensive four-day virtual training program. The next live program is February 1st through the 4th, 2022, and there's also a self-paced version available at ASCPodcast.com. And the New Jersey Association uh, January 26-22 program is at Galloping Hill Country Club, and Ann Geyer will be speaking there, and I'll be there doing a podcast. ASCA 2022 will be in Dallas, Texas, April 27th through the 30th. 2022, and John will be speaking in a special track for new ASC administrators. And go to ASCAssociation.org for more information. And the New Jersey ASC Association Annual Conference is going to be June 7th and 8th at the Hilton East Brunswick, and I'll be speaking about succession planning. So I'm kind of excited to hear what Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about. And don't forget about our recorded events, all available on ASCPodcast.com. Those include the Credentialing Conference, uh, the Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference, Conditions for Coverage Conference, and the Medical Director Conference. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Galey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Galey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Kalaritis, Amy Gerbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, 
attorneys, and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.